Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's about to fly off to Toronto to see my son graduate from high school tomorrow. Today we are joined by the journalist of A Thousand Quips, Mick Wright in Norwich, and by the woman that Time magazine described as an outspoken voice of the left. It's Amanda Marcotte in Brooklyn in New York. Um, say hello, folks. Hello, hello. folks. That gag is just going to follow, follow us with to it, the guys. You are, aren't you? I've done, every, I've done it every episode. Yeah. Four years and it's still going strong. In a week that is seeing a Californian woman threaten to call the police on an eight-year-old black girl for selling water, we ask, is it right to refuse to serve a politician in public? White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked to leave a Virginia restaurant Friday. The co-owner of the Red Hen in Lexington, Virginia, Stephanie Wilkinson, told the Washington Post her decision to ask Sanders to leave was based on the concerns of several employees. Wilkinson expressed no regret and said she felt justified in her action because Sanders is a public official, not a regular customer. Sanders confirmed the incident in a tweet on Saturday, writing she was asked to leave because of her association with President Trump. She also wrote, her actions say far more about her than about me. I always do my best to treat people, including those I disagree with, respectfully and will continue to do so. Sanders is just the latest administration official to be received poorly in a public setting. And family separation! If kids don't eat in peace, you don't eat in peace! Protesters confronted Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen at a Mexican restaurant in Washington last week over the Trump administration's family separation policy. And advisor Stephen Miller faced his own protester just days before when another customer called him a fascist. The White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders was kicked out of the Red Hen restaurant in Lexington, Virginia on Friday night because she works for President Donald Trump. Was the owner right to ask her to leave? Amanda in Hipster, Brooklyn, New York, over to you. 
yeah, I mean, I think um, I think there's a lot of people conflating a lot of different issues on this question. I think it it, it was particularly it hit particularly hard because it happened after um, the Supreme Court uh, sort of punted on the masterpiece cake shop issue here in the U.S., where there was a debate over whether or not a baker had a right to turn away a same-sex couple who came in trying to buy a wedding cake. And I think, you know, there were accusations of hypocrisy kind of flying from both sides of the aisle, like liberals accusing conservatives of being hypocrites for being outraged about Sarah Huckabee Sanders while defending this baker for turning away a same-sex couple and conservatives accusing liberals of being hypocrites because they defended the same-sex couple while also saying you can turn away Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And I, you should, listeners should go to Salon. I'm writing, I, it should be up by the time this episode goes up, but I am writing a piece right now kind of, you know, pulling out these different cases and explaining why they're different. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a huge difference between America, you know, these laws in America that prevent discrimination on the basis of race and gender and sexual orientation and ejecting somebody from a business because they don't meet, they personally as a person are not meeting, you know, the standards of the, the atmosphere or whatever you're trying to create in your business. And, you know, Huckabee Sanders was not discriminated against because of her race or gender or even arguably her political affiliation. She was discriminated against because she um, is a spokesman for human rights abuses. But, but Amanda, one of the kind of corner marks, uh, cornerstones, sorry, of the Civil Rights Act in the mid-1960s was you couldn't discriminate against people because of the colour of their skin, mm -hmm. right? You absolutely couldn't. And kind of, though it was never codified into law, that um, politically you can't do that. Is the surely that a line actually has been crossed here? And I must admit, I'm incredibly conflicted about this. I, I go backwards and forwards on this. And I think I've just about got my position, which I'll, I'll kind of re reveal later. But it does appear to me that to ask somebody to, to leave who is a paid official of the United States government, and there might be inactives and apologies which you find egregious, is actually ethically wrong. If not actually wrong i i don't i disagree i mean you know first of all i would i would challenge the notion that because the united states has it, various anti-discrimination laws and a patchwork system across states that 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 has created this sort of come one come all you know moral and ethical stance you know for instance um if you go out clubbing in any big city in this country on Friday or Saturday night, you will see people turned away from nightclubs for how they're dressed, for what they look like, um, much less serious, quote unquote, offenses than being a spokesperson for baby jails, which was, you know, really the line that that Sarah Huckabee Sanders crossed that caused this, this uh, you know, business owner to um to kick her out uh, you know so i i don't I think it's more complicated than that 
Do you know, I, I think Karl Popper kind of gave us a very clear answer on this in 1945. So he published a book called The Open Society and Its Enemies. And, and, and in that, he put forward this thing, uh, which he called the paradox of tolerance. And basically, the notion is this, that the, 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 the need in order to have a tolerant society, you sometimes need to be intolerant of the intolerant, not tolerant, not tolerate the intolerant. Because mm. what you know, you look at, um, you know, uh, President Heidelberg in, 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 in Germany and tolerating the Nazis, the Nazis were tolerated and tolerated and tolerated until they took sufficient power that they eradicated tolerance. So, in a sense, I'm kind of a bit, and I'm very tired of the civility police who are out enforcing it in the US <laughs> at the moment because their their attitudes are, you know, Trump Trump supporters, um, Trump officials have shown very little tolerance for other people, so they've sort of abrogated their right to it. The other thing I would say is if you look at you know American notions of free speech, in a sense. What that restaurant owner is doing is not discriminating against her, but rather exercising a kind of free speech in the sense that private space, you know, and creating a private space. Like if you're a restaurateur, you're creating an environment. It's sort of a kind of speech act. And in that sense, you're saying in order for the freedoms of everybody else in this restaurant, including my workers, some of whom are, you know, immigrant workers. And that's a key point here. Uh, to be comfortable, this person who is acting against the interests of of, of immigrants and, and and migrants in in all kinds of ways shouldn't be here. So yeah, it's kind of complicated, but it's kind of simple. Like particularly as the fact that we see Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, project all kinds of intolerances in the White House briefing room on a nearly daily basis. Well, when she decides to do an on camera briefing, that is. Yeah, and I would agree with you, Mick, in the too, that I think a lot of people are overlooking, you know, the critical question of power here. You know, the reason that we have anti-discrimination laws that in this country is specifically because historically the people that the classes of people that are called protected classes, the, the sort of categories of discrimination we don't allow are ones that people have traditionally been discriminated against in ways that material materially affect them. So, you know, the fact that you know, people of color were segregated in American society, you know, wasn't just sort of abstractly wrong. It was also, you know, caused material daily damage to their quality of life. Sarah Huckabee Sanders not getting a cheese plate isn't going to change the fact that tomorrow she gets to be still one of the most powerful people in the country. And, 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 and failing to understand that context, um, you know, and, and trying to reduce everything to these kind of hypotheticals or these civility no. questions is, is missing no. the point. No, and I think that is right. And her father then tweeting out that this was discrimination um, you know, is bonkers. He's bonkers. No, Amanda, I think you're absolutely right. But what this has done is to go and ramp up America's kind of culture war, isn't it? Where uh, people who historically have not been victims, of which you kind of touched on, um, can now say we are victims as much as anybody else. And actually, our victimhood 
trumps yours, pun absolutely not intended. So what is this now saying about civil discourse in, in the United States if, what, in, in a week, is it one, two, three American, uh, prominent American politicians can be hounded out of public spaces? Though, What does he say about civil discourse, Mick? Again, I, I think I think it might. I think it, to an extent, it just shows um, the left may be fighting back in a, uh, against the against some of the things the right have done, and showing them that that there are consequences to these policies. There are consequences for acting in this way, and the, the notion that the civil discourse is worse now than it was in the past is sort of. Uh, crazy because if you look at you know look at the the, the civil rights because what's happening a lot is it, uh, particularly on um fox and, and other right-wing talk show environments is they're sort of implying that civil discourse was was much more polite in the past and you've got old white guys talking about the civil rights movement but you know uh, martin luther king was shot uh, malcolm x was shot robert robert kennedy was assassinated it, okay. we're not you know, civil Mick, discourse Mick. in America has not been particularly polite ever, really. Uh, Mick, we let, let's not go back fifty years, sixty years. No, why, why not though? Because they're, they're they're bringing it back to that. What's more, they're bringing it back to that. hold no, hold hold on for just one second. Hold on for just one second because they are bringing it back. And the thing that's really getting me around these discussions is you see the sort of people who would have argued for. Um, water cannons against the civil rights marches, bringing up the name of Martin Luther King to support the notion of some sort of like um, old timey civility. But that's like you, you have sometimes to protest against huge injustices. You cannot be civil to do it. It's like people who uh, uh, always kind of reach towards Mandela in his later years, you know, the old soft voice Mandela and forget the Mandela of the sixties. who was, you know, who was an armed revolutionary. Like sometimes you can, civility will not get the job done. Well, and I, you know, I, it's not even, we don't need to reach back even, or even look at the left. I mean, the, the hypocrisy and disingenuous nature of this is proved by who these folks are defending, which is Donald Trump. Right. Uh, he He's somebody who brags about sexual assault. He's somebody who made fun of a reporter's disability on the campaign trail. He is somebody who calls names, who is uncivil in every possible way. I, I mean, I, 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 I hesitate to even sit here and like list it out. And I think what is kind of interesting about this discussion is, it, first of all, it's obvious bad faith. You can't support Donald Trump and then claim your first ability flat out. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Second of all, it, you know, it, it, it kind of really highlights, I think what is the issue here, which is you can't avoid these culture wars. I, I, there's this sense that a lot of us get into that if the, that the left can somehow manipulate the right by being nice or doing this or doing that into them not culture warring at us anymore. And that's not going to happen. Like the reason Sarah Huckabee Sanders is a crazy racist who defends baby jail is not because somebody was mean to her in a restaurant. The meanness in the restaurant was after the de defending of baby jails. Like 
the culture war is happening whether we like it or not. Now the only question is whether we're willing to fight. Do you think, Mick, that this is another one of these kind of examples of CEO activism? You know, we've had Larry Fink's letter to shareholders calling for the company leaders to abandon the neutral ground when it comes when the social contract is at stake. We had Starbucks closing down for a day uh, to give racial bias training after two black customers were arrested for not making a purchase while they waited for the friends. So there is this kind of recent tradition of this. And then also, I kind of think that this this notion of um, business leaders, however big, however small, uh, calling out political leaders or, or the mores of the time, is incredibly, incredibly powerful. What do you think? But I, 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 the, well, no, I don't think it fits in the category of that other stuff. Because how did we find out that this happened? We found out that this happened because Sarah Huckabee Sanders, um, the massive bully that she is, misused a government means of communication, the official press secretary Twitter account, to tell us that this happened and to note how polite and nice she is versus this horrible restaurant owner who did this. Now, as I understand it, I think that she's in violation of some sort of uh, yeah. US law around this as well. Email instead of yeah. a private email, yeah. Yeah, I think it's something like a hatch act or something. Um, but yeah, it, it's it, the point with her is that, that uh, and the point with this is, what was the actual owner of the restaurant doing? As far as I can tell, the owner was not trying to make a public political statement, but more to act in the interests of the employees who felt uncomfortable about serving this person who is acting in a way that is, you know, contrary to they believe to their rights. So actually it's just about an employer acting in the interests of their employees. It became a political statement when Sarah Huckabee Sanders decided to use it as a means to, you know, highlight how the left bullies the right, in her view. Mm. Amanda, do you think that the food at that restaurant is going to be morally superior and must then taste more delicious now? (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Possibly, I, I you know, it, <laughs> I think you know to what Mick was saying. I think we do have to consider the possibility that many of these particular situations are being orchestrated by Trump administration officials and professional trolls like Milo Yiannopoulos on the right. You know, why this restaurant? Why did Kristen Nielsen go to a Mexican restaurant? You know, why, why, I'm not, I, I, I feel like I'm getting into somewhat conspiracy theory territory, but I, I do kind of think that there is a, they do think this runs to their political benefit. And I think that, you know, we know for a fact that Mike Pence has done this on purpose in order to create a public spectacle. He's gone to NFL games. He went to Hamilton specifically with hopes that he would provoke a reaction by the people there, you know, going into the liberal territory to provoke a reaction so he could play the victim. So, I mean, I think we should have a healthy amount of skepticism to begin with that the reason that Sarah Huckabee Sanders went to a farm to table restaurant in a 
a town that voted solidly for Hillary Clinton that was two hours out of her way <laughs> might not have been um, for the purest of motivations, as it were. But still, right, and uh, I asked the question before, and it wasn't sufficiently answered to, to my liking, and whoever wants to jump in with this, feel free to jump in. At least initially, in the initial fallout, there has been, an, as much as us lefties are going, woo, 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 you go, owner. And yes, I completely understand, and I take your point, Nick, that if she's got um, Latino kitchen staff, wait staff, and I believe there's some gay staff there also, that these people, you know, just... You know, it, they're just kind of like beside themselves with shock that this woman would actually turn up and, and they'd feel incredibly uncomfortable. So I get that and that she was defending defending her, her staff and actually taking their fears and their feelings in, into consideration. But we we have to, you know, I would say that, that us on the left at the moment have the moral high ground that we we've entered into discourse um, not in bad faith and not trying to demonize uh, the other in the way that uh, Trump and his acolytes actually have. What we haven't done uh, on the left is we, we haven't demonized. And there's a world away from refusing service to somebody and politely explaining why. There's a world of difference between that and shouting at somebody in a restaurant and almost like a baying mob, of which then they're forced to flee. And I don't want us to do that. I think um, the owner of the Red, Red Hen restaurant, completely not elite within her rights, uh, to sit down with Sarah Huckabee Sanders and say, the effect of your policies and the administration that, that um, is promoting them is creating harm to real people and some of those real people are in this establishment right now. They have brothers, cousins, aunts, whatever, which your policies are affecting. And the language that your that your boss, the president, is using is then ratcheting up a sense of fear. So with that in mind, um, I think we should comp your meal and really you should go. I don't have a problem with that. But with the Christine Nielsen thing, I am very uneasy, extremely uneasy. And I think that is incredibly pernicious. And we, and we can't slide into that where people who we disagree with, we shout and bay at them in a public space. I, I, I really disagree. I think it's impossible for the left to lose the moral high ground so long as we are not the ones putting children in jail well well th that was actually going to be my, my, my next point let me just finish this point and then the, the, the floor is over to the parents. it's like an essay this one no stop it stop it you <laughs> is it as this happened this week because of the baby jails or was this going to happen anyway because of the rapiting up of the language from the Trump regime for the last 18 months. I think it was the baby jails. I think it really was. I mean, it, it it's, 
And the thing is, sure, it might have been some other tipping point, but whatever other tipping point it was going to be, it was going to be equally evil. And I think that that's part of the reason that I find this discourse about the discourse to be troubling because it is a distraction from from the fact that what people are, the reason people are committing you know, these acts of public spectacle, the reason people are, are doing things that are quote unquote rude, um, that are committing civil disobedience, all sorts of things is because we are facing down a very real threat in this country that Donald Trump is going to, you know, destroy our democracy, dismantle human rights. This is not, we are, we are in a national emergency and I'm a little worried that people are forgetting that. And, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm not particularly interested in policing how the left draws attention to that fact. I'm, you know, it it could be that, you know, the mainstream media finger wagging, turns into the situation where the public spectacle tactics sort of, um, backfire by making the discourse about civility, but you know, to what Mick was saying, and I think he's right about the historical, you know, precedence is the same thing did happen to Martin Luther King. The same thing happened to um, civil rights protesters. They were also finger wagged at, told to wait their turn, said they were being uh, disruptive, and that this was not the way to go. And that turned out to be completely un- incorrect. It turned out. That no, the the needle was never going to move unless people were willing to color outside the lines. I think you've also you, I think you've also got to take into account that you you're dealing with a political um, you're dealing with an administration who don't so much want to shift the Overton window as smash it up entirely. And it, when you look at stuff like the baby jails and the, which is like I think is the best way to talk about it because that's literally what it is. You shouldn't allow them to to wrap it up into bureaucratic language when you deal with stuff like that what you're looking at is they do stuff where people are so shocked that they've separated families um you know from the children that then people are almost cheering them on when or or applauding them for saying oh we'll get the families back together so what you but what you're actually saying is yeah we'll, we'll get the families back together in just the same kind of camps you know, we'll cage them. We'll just put them in bigger cages. You know, this that's why it is necessary to shout. And it's why it's necessary to not be civil. It's this, We've had this issue in, in the United Kingdom for a long time where politeness is used as the tool of elites in order to stop people from saying uncomfortable things that raise questions that might make people say this cannot stand. But if you can put politeness and etiquette around it, you can get away with a hell of a lot of dark shit. Mm. So um, d- just ending up on this, uh, Amanda, um, this is your country, which, which is which is go- going through this uh, this moral uh, kind of crisis at the moment. Are you are you telling me that? Because listen to your answer before you said that um, you are worried about the shift. Uh, of America into some kind of form of dictatorship. Are you seriously telling me that the institutions of the United States, which are some, over some 200 years old, which have um, seen off um, the seen off uh, the antics of Tyron Burr at the, fo- at the founding of the Republic, it's seen off a civil war, 
and has had the, the seismic shocks of uh, civil rights in the 1960s, etc., etc., that the institutions of the United States are, are going to wobble and could, could well fall because of Donald Trump. Surely not. If, I really wish I wasn't saying that, but unfortunately, you know, a lot of the times this the Republic was saved in the past, I think it was a lot closer call than people would like to really admit and I think that Donald Trump could very well do it, especially if he is not resisted to the utmost. And, you know, as we are speaking about this, as we're recording this, the, you know, the Supreme Court, which has been stacked not just by Trump, but by other Republicans who were similarly hostile to democracy, just issued a flatly unconstitutional ruling, um, you know, upholding Donald Trump's Muslim travel ban. Uh, a, tra- a travel ban that is in direct violation of the First Amendment, um, you know, of the of the Constitution of the United States that holds that we should not discriminate that the that the that the government has no right to interfere with people's religious beliefs, and the fact of the matter is they just upheld a ban on people because of their religious beliefs. And there's, you know, they came up with all sorts of goofy excuses for why that wasn't true. But at the end of the day, I would argue that the constitutional crisis is already here. We already have a president that's been calling for the end of due process. We already have a court that just violated and smashed through the First Amendment in the most egregious way. We already have a president that has been asserting, and I fear with this Supreme Court, will get away with smashing the longstanding precedent that our, our leader, our executive is still a citizen and is held accountable to the law as citizens should be held, you know, whenever the Mueller investigation is finished. These things are coming, and... You know, whether those are real threats to the Republic. I can't, I obviously cannot predict. I don't see the future, uh, but I, I can safely say those are very real threats and we should take them very seriously. And failure to do so makes it a lot easier for Trump to succeed in ending American democracy as we know it. Yeah, I, I know I keep looking at historical parallels, Roy Ford, and it's getting on your tits, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, but, but, and, and, and I know that we often, like, it, it's, it's almost, you know, everyone says, oh, well, we always go back to Weimar sleep, slipping into Nazi Germany as, as, a, as a sort of example of what happens in history. But if you look at the, the, the way that the Weimar Republic collapsed and the Nazi totalitarian state grew up, it was a, it was a slow slide for a long time. But then after the Reichstag fire, you, you, it was a matter of eight weeks before the first concentration camp was opened. So we've got many historical, and this is the same thing in, you know, in Soviet Russia. There, there are, there, we've got many historical parallels of, of quick moves from countries that had democratic constitutions or, or constitutional arrangements and settlements that seem to be you know, a permanent thing that have fallen apart. The notion to me that bothers me sometimes is the, is this sort of uh, American exceptionalism idea that the American constitution is so robust <laughs> that it can survive anything. And it's not, no. 
It's just not. Yeah. Any con- constitution can be worn away and destroyed. And that's what bothers me about this stuff, because people say, oh, well, don't be so hyperbolic. But in the end, sometimes it's necessary when you look at a threat and you say these people are truly anti-democratic. And it's not just Trump himself. It's that I feel that there are darker figures around Trump who are able to push Trump in the direction they want him to go in. Hmm. No, normally, yeah, well, well done, sir. Uh, normally, uh, <laughs> when we uh, when when we pose a topic, it's uh, only right and proper to let uh, the person of the country, uh, which the topic is really aimed at, to, to have the final word. So, on on this somewhat dispiriting and I would say apocalyptic note, uh, Amanda Markart, it, it's over to you for, for your final thoughts and feelings because I I feel somewhat um, outmaneuvered by the pair of you on this. So, somewhat I'm playing devil's advocate by trying to say that we should we should moderate our, our speech. And and I think neither of you have still really answered my one point. And it's only one point I've made in all of this, because obviously I, I agree with the pair of you emotionally, ethically, every which way. But but is that the initial uh one the initial fruits of this is for those people, however wrong headed they are to support or not to believe that this uh, policy is a disgusting slur on 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 the face of American politics. What what you know what this Trump regime was actually doing, and the fact that they're so callously doing it, and when they were called out on it, when it became public knowledge for the first week or so that people like Jeff Sessions and that weasel um, uh, Stephen Miller were basically laughing and just saying, ah, but it's kind of not so bad. And, you know, and if you come with the border with your kids, we tell you we're going to take your kids away type of thing, right? But still, because of how... So the argument has been won morally, ethically, in the court of public opinion. But by shouting and screaming, however heartfelt... And true that emotion is, and hounding out that woman who is somebody of high privilege, so I take that point, Amanda, out of a restaurant, the it ratchets up just another notch or two, the, pub, the public intolerance and discourse, and people on the far, on the, I'm not going to say the far right, I don't want to say the far right, because then we can kind of emotionally dismiss them. But some people... Mike Huckabee, for example, right? He was somebody who I used to think 10 plus years ago was okay. He's uh, a bit of a religious nut, but he wasn't the worst in terms of um, that, that type of Republican, but seems to have drifted right and right and more right. That people like that, who 10 years ago were in the mainstream of American political politics can just say, ha there you go, right? Um, it, it the the fundamental glue which binds any society together has to be at the heart that most people most of the time can talk and have a discourse with each other and that is gone and people like Mike Huckabee can then talk about discrimination and that's what I worry about is that people who don't fundamentally think that this policy is wrong and that this presidency is wrong can just say, look at the intolerance that we're shown. Yes, we absolutely know that at the heart of this administration is intolerance, but then they can throw it back at us. And that 
is my worry in all of this? I, you know, I think ultimately we can tie ourselves into all sorts of knots, but we need to stop discussing these polit these these culture war issues as one sided, where only the left has autonomy, only the left has power. And I think that the problem, of course, is that's how we do talk about it. You know, Mike Huckabee says racist stuff. He's never actually been a good guy. He just played one on TV. Um, he's he's always been a terrible human being. You know, his son, um, you know, killed some dog in some horrible way and got away with it. Like, th- that family is rotten to the core. But I, I would say, you know, getting away from him, I would say that the failure I think on a lot of our pieces, and I understand that a lot of us feel helpless and, and we want to feel like we can somehow raise the level of discourse single handedly. But unfortunately we can't do that while the other side is like baby jails, Donald Trump is our president, pussy grabbing, blah, blah. Right. (laughs) Like it's over. It's done. Now the, like they went, they have, they have declared war on us. And the question now really remains, do we fight back? But I think that it's a little bit naive to think that if we, if the left stops screaming at people in restaurants or protesting at their house or, or somehow found a way to. I didn't say anything about that. Fair, fair. (laughs) But you know, whatever, whatever the civility debate is this week, and there will always be something, you know, uh, whatever we ratchet it back to, they will declare still too rude and, and fuss about that because this is not a, a good faith argument. You know, what it is is the right trying to assert that they can say and do what they want and the left can't respond in kind or even at all. It, you know, it is the bully's argument, it is the abuser's argument, it's the why are you making me hit you argument. And I think we just got to we have to get past that. We have to say, no, you hit me because you want to. And that's, that's the only way we can kind of move forward. We, we have to stop getting derailed with this nonsense. Right. I'll tell you one nonsense we're not going to get derailed <laughs> by. It's the next three weeks of the World <laughs> A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Who's in Nizhny Novgorod for us. Just for those who don't know, there aren't many. Fill us in on the score. An amazing win for England. 6-1 against Panama. Uh, Five goals in the first half. Two from John Stone, two from Harry Kane. At least Panama managed to get one goal, their first goal in a World Cup, their first appearance in a World Cup ever. I do have some England fans for you right here. Neil and Richard, how are you feeling after that amazing triumph? Um, I'm in shock, really. I don't think it's uh, it's ever happened that we've been 5-0 up at half-time in a World Cup. we were both looking at each other in disbelief, thinking, what a great game to choose to, to come to Russia and see. What was the atmosphere like in the stadium? Because there aren't that many of you. No, no, absolutely amazing atmosphere. Um, I mean, either end, we could see, you know, the England, we saw the England supporters club at one end. We saw England supporters at the other. I mean, it was, uh, we, we were sitting in the middle, wonderful atmosphere. We were alongside Panama fans. Uh, that fire staff, we've never seen anything like that. Uh, Kane, I mean, it, we were ultra clinical. Every, every chance we had, we took. Absolutely amazing. We beat Panama 6-1. After, what, 52 years of hurt, is it time to start to dare to dream of lifting up the World Cup this year? This is incredible, isn't it? I, this, I, this happens every time with, with, with England in, in, in tournaments, is that we, before the tournament, we talk about how we need to keep our expectations within reasonable bounds because, you know, we've got a bad history tournament football. We I, I know you always think that I interrupt you. and then You, you do, because you do. Because you but do. I, I didn't even get to disagree with the first line of what you said. We don't always do that. It's been well, okay. a relatively recent... Um, well, occurrence that what, we screw up tournament in tournament is, football. No, no, no. That our attitude going in, the public and the media's attitude going in. For the last two tournaments, we've thought we're not going to do anything. And, anyway, and, and anyway, to do. get back to my point, you rude man. <laughs> <laughs> my point with this is, look, I just the reason I, I suggested this topic, and I, it's because I want to talk about a wider issue, which is. Uh, English arrogance and like the weird distorted nature of English identity in that we kind of think we're the worst, but also think we're the best at everything. So we're really ready to jump on the heads of people like the England football team when they don't hit our expectations. But we also are willing to just completely ignore uh, past, you know, past performance um, our, our, our tournament performance in the past, you know, 40 odd years, 50 odd years. So it, it, it's really interesting to me because we beat Panama, right? And it was like, it honestly, we're a world-class football team playing like a Sunday league pub team. And we kind of went, isn't it amazing? We beat them 6-1. We didn't beat <laughs> Spain 6-1 or Colombia or Brazil. We beat Panama, who've never been in a World Cup before. And we conceded a goal against them. So it's like, it's, this is a great metaphor for Brexit Britain, where we just think, where we just think we can punch way above our weight. It's ridiculous. Amanda. Amanda. You're, you're, you're expressing everything that went through my head while that game was on, but I did not say out loud. But okay, right. 
you can only beat the opposition that's in front of you. Granted, and Panama didn't come to that World Cup thinking that they were going to win it. Well, they and, thought they were in a WWE wrestling match. Well, they they did, they did. There were a bunch of wrestlers. There were hatchet men. That you know, they 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 were playing rugby. They were playing rugby. They were not playing football, right? And the attitude of the Panamanian manager at the end of that game, but he was just laughing and he just smiled when he shook out Southgate's hand, the England manager, and shook him by the hand very warmly. They'd come just to take part in a festival of football, right? And they were just going to try their best to keep the score down. But, right, how many times, with the exception of Brazil in the last World Cup, which was what, 7-1 against uh, Germany against Brazil in the last World Cup, how many times have teams actually run up cricket scores against other teams? It's actually not that much of a common occurrence. You know, so, you know, let's give England a certain a certain amount of credit here, Mick. Well, we did the we we did the notorious five one against Germany in in a friendly, didn't that, we? Which, yeah, but that, that wasn't in the World Cup, though. It wasn't in the no. World Cup. Well, I know there and, is some and it credit. Wasn't friendly. There is some credit, and look, I will admit to in my heart having the same thing where I keep thinking to myself, well, maybe because they they seem to be a more together side, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But and we're coming out of. I, I'll be interested to see how we do against Belgium, a team with actually yeah. you know quality players. Yeah, but they're just an all-star team, aren't they, Amanda? Belgium, right, it's just a team of overpaid, e- pumped-up egomaniacs, right, with Mino as a manager. Right, uh, come on, Amanda, back me up here. Because, like, isn't America starting to love soccer? Um, you know, Cup? they say that every uh, every World Cup, that this is the one that... And it becomes yeah, but uh, more you know, for true. two reasons, I think one is that the sport is becoming more popular around the world. Period. Right, and we're just part of a worldwide trend. And two, because I think um, it, it really, it, you know, kind of goes back to what is the er debate. It seems in the United States, all uh, about every issue is immigration. I think has really had this tremendous impact on who likes soccer in the United States, where soccer is popular and where it's kind of gone viral, as it were, you know, you see here in New York city world cup is like crazy. <laughs> like every bar's got viewings, everyone's talking about it. And that's not a surprise. This is an immigrant city. Um, and you see it like in the Western United States where there's a huge influx of people from Mexico and Latin America generally, um, I just don't know about the rest of the country, though. I think they still don't care. <laughs> do, do you think, Amanda, that for but America is starting to care more, and it's starting to care more since nine this is the nineteen ninety four World Cup. I was I was struck, and yes, uh, the Bay Area is one of the liberal bastions of the United States, and yes, as you said, it's a place where there are a lot of Latino. Uh, first, second, third generation um, Americans, so at least they still have some kind of allegiance to um, some kind of roots, sorry, to, to other countries. And then there are other immigrants, people like myself, and, and everybody else on planet Earth, with the exception maybe of the country of India, comes from a country where football is, if it's not number one sport, it's, it's number two sport. Uh, and I'm really struck when I'm in the Bay Area that I can go to any bar 
and actually have a conversation with a random American and they know when I say football, yes, they smile, but then they then they talk about football, not American crazy rugby football with, with metal helmets. They'll go, yeah, and they can talk about kind of Manchester United and they can talk about Arsenal, not to to massive great decks, but the average American is aware of this thing now. So so isn't it you know, so I think you'll you know, you Americans are becoming to love the beautiful game. I mean, it's such a thing for me. It's such a thing from difficult thing for me to wrap my head around in my own personal experience, because I lived in Texas until 2009. And yeah, to an extent you saw that. And I think that was also somewhat of a reaction to it being a more popular sport on the high school level. So more and more people just happen to know how to play it than they used to. Right. Um, so, you know, that was certainly kind of a thing, but I would also point out Texas is also um, a heavily Latino state. And so soccer was being played on the TVs there because, you know, Mexican immigrants and whatnot. Um, and, and in fact, I, I was in Dallas for the Champions League game. And, um, and I will say that I, I went to this bar in Dallas to watch it and it was packed to the absolute rafters. And to my surprise, I thought it would all be Real Madrid fans, but it was, you know, half and half with Liverpool. So, so maybe, maybe in the past almost decade since I've moved away from Texas, it's gotten um, more popular everywhere in the U.S. But it, it's a little tough for me to say, like living in New York, where everyone, everything's a little bit more European, right? Are you New York Red Bulls or New York City? New York City. Oh, Good answer, correct answer, well done. Uh, Mick, is this team, is this group of individuals with Harry Kane, you know, as our talisman, the right bunch of guys in white shirts to help lift our mood as we go into these, the hot baking summer? Because, you know, just before you answer, sir, it was just to say that I felt, to say that I felt part of a national euphoric mood when I was in the pub watching that 6-1 is putting it mildly. It was the stereotypical strangers next to you, hugging you, uh, kissing you. You know, it was just some. I feel like something has absolutely switched in the country watching this te- this English team play. You are so, you're soft as shite you are. You really are. <laughs> I am. I mean, I am. Like, I'm not, listen, Mick, I'm not as cynical as you. No, I'm not. I I'm getting more and more convinced. I can, I'm getting more and more convinced I can sell you a big bridge in London. I really am. I really am. <laughs> You're the kind of person that billboards work on. Um, like, I, 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 I'm sort of, I have a sort of bicameral experience with this in my head because, in on the one hand, I think. In the yep. one hand, I think I would like England to win because, or, or to get far in the tournament because I was a little kid the last time we really had a potential that we might, you know, the, the year of Gascoigne's legendary tears and on, us unfairly getting bumped out early um, when we should have made that final. We should have made that final. So I like that in some ways. But on the other side of it, if we win the World Cup, 
the Brexiteers are going to be even more unbearable than they are now. So I sort of oh, don't want us. Don't worry, you're not going to win the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? This is like when, this is like when someone insults your kids. I can criticize my own kids, right? So, but you can't. <laughs> Yeah, and at least we're there. You've got to be in it to win it. Where is America uh, in the in this tournament? Yeah, uh, I, I... three hundred and twenty million with the six most attended soccer league. Oh God, I said that. Oh God, oh, God no. <laughs> that's what you. With the, become. With the what six have you become? most attended football because it's called MLS. I had MLS on the brain. The sixth uh, highest attended uh, football league on planet Earth, right? You've got David Beckham buying franchises, etc., and you couldn't come out of the group of Consica, which has only Mexico is the only country of any repute when it comes to football you need to play against. The rest is St. Kitts, there are Cuba, Jamaica, uh, Nicaragua. Rubbish. Oh, you should feel ashamed of yourselves. <laughs> Call yourselves the leaders of the free world. <laughs> Do you know what? I, 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 I'm... I'm excited about 2026 because it's the first World Cup in, in, in a long time that I'll be able to go to. Banned from Qatar, banned from Russia. At the moment, I'm not banned from the US. So. <laughs> Give it time, Mick. It, it happens to the best of us. But anyway, uh, Amanda, all right, um, stick, up, stick up for America. Please explain to me the reason why you guys are not at this World Cup. Please. Oh, I mean, we suck and that's fine. You know, I think uh, we, we have... We had some folks over to watch the games on Saturday, and I think everyone at my place agreed that in the grand scheme of things, we were glad the U.S. didn't qualify this year because (laughs) it would have felt bad to root for us when Trump is our president. (laughs) And now we can just put all of our energy into rooting for Mexico and leave it at that. But why are you rooting for Mexico? when surely you should be supporting your English cousins? Well, no, I'm, I'm not speaking for all Americans, but for myself, um, I'm... On this podcast you are, <laughs> au contraire. On this podcast you are the voice of America. Well, uh, and I will tell you that the voice of America when they are a Texan is a Texan first and an American second. <laughs> um You know, I grew up on the border of Mexico. Um, My family's from Mexico on one side. Uh, It's very hard. I'm congenitally incapable of not rooting for Mexico. So, Mick, you're trying to tell me, right, beforehand, that I am just away with the fairies. I'm I'm soft. I'm gullible. And this whole thing uh, of there being a, a change in the mood in England around the English football team it's just a media concept, and I'm gullible, and I'm bored with it. How many pints well, did you have? Mick, I'm fundamentally teetotal, sir. Right, well, how, how many pints of people I, around you had? <laughs> <laughs> Mick, all right, I'm going to go back. Look, no, that's, no I'm, I'm not, as you said earlier in this podcast, I'm not sufficiently happy with the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mick. Yeah, Mick. I hate it right. when you say my name this much. Mr. Uh, Wright. Yes, oh, even worse. Carry on. Our, our correspondent from Norwich. How is that better? Right. Not especially, carry Last on. World Cup. Oh, gosh, last World Cup I was in San Francisco. All right. Well, one before that, 2010. The, there wasn't the mood around this team. 
in 2006, yes, there was in Germany because we believe we had the golden generation with your Lampards, the Gerrards and all of that. Okay. And we went into that World Cup thinking, ah, we, we can kind of do something. And we got shown up. But I think, I, for me, part of this elation around this team is because for the, for the second or the third time, we've actually gone into a tournament with zero expectations, the, with the exception of Harry Kane um, and possibly Raheem Sterling. He was pumped up by the press just before the World Cup. This is not a team of, of household names, is it? You know, no, I think that's a great thing. And uh, Look, the other thing about it is I think people quite like Gareth Southgate. As a manager, right, he's not foreign, which, sorry, British people do not enjoy having foreign managers in the national team. They really don't. Like, don't get my dad started on that. Whether that's an issue or not, I, I, but it, it, I, I, it's just a fact. It's a fact. I think people think in, uh, that there should be an English manager for the England team. The other thing, I, I, is, I, I, I'm inclined to agree. Uh, if you know, yeah. if you need a nationality uh, qualification to play for that, yeah, same. I think the manager yeah. should be the same. Yeah, I, the manager certainly should be able to speak English, which was the problem we had with Capello. Capello His spoken English yeah. was not that good. But anyway, the other thing is, I think people look at Southgate and they they kind of see him as a sort of talisman in the sense that he is, you know, he's one of the like talismanic misses of a penalty, you know, but also he just seems like a nice bloke Um, where the big worry he had before the Panama game was that he was wearing a light blue shirt and that wasn't going to hide any of the sweat. (laughs) Just like, this is brilliant. It's like having Alan Partridge manage the England team, but I sort of love it. So I think there's that. And also you're right, not not a load of, 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 of household names, but they play as a team and they kind of don't seem like dickheads, which is, you know... Un- <laughs> which is sort of- it's a huge thing. Yeah, it's the polar opposite of when I watch the Super Bowl, when I have to sort of take do a tally of which team has fewer domestic abusers and convicted rapists on it, and then go, okay, which team do I hate least on that basis? So I kind of think, you know, this is a good thing. You know what, that, that is a, a fair yardstick stick to measure when you're watching any, um, as a neutral, watching any kind of uh, American NFL game. But, it's incredible right, to the number of players that can still play. Like, you wouldn't be able to be in the Premier League with some of these guys' conviction records. It's insane. No, no, that, that is true. But you can't ever be rooting for the New England Patriots, though, can you? Imagine? No. You've been a good Texan. No. All right, you you back me up on that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I must. And don't tell me you're a Cowboys no, fan because otherwise I, I your position on this podcast will be terminated. No, I hate okay, the Cowboys. Good. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you you hate the Cowboys. If you hate the Cowboys and you're from Texas, you hate them even more. Good. Now, Amanda. All right, because. Um, your country is still finding its soccer ball uh, kind of bony Fridays and stuff. Uh, you are actually going to round off this section by telling us who is going to win the World Cup and why. Oh, God. I'm not. And then, and then, and then which country deserves to win the World Cup? And oh, why? God. I really don't know. I really don't know. I'm not that good at this stuff. Um, uh, I, you've, you've got me, man. I think that. Um, you know, I would have, I would have, if I was a betting person, put money on Germany. I suspect early, but I don't know now. 
on the, on the other hand, you know, they did kind of pull it out in that game with Sweden. So I wouldn't count them out. Um, I, I really don't know. I, I what I've watched, I, it does not give me any sense of 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 it. You you would probably have a much better guess. What well, well, the attacking verve and quality that England has shown in its two games has not tilted you to believe. Well, you know what, it's England's time. No, I think you're going to have to do more than beat Panama. <laughs> and beat the mighty Tunisians too. <laughs> I. Uh, I think Germany can mm. still win it because they've come out of group stages in the past and done a lot better than they did in the group stage. And I would love to see an African team win. So I'm ba- I'm still backing the great kit-wearing Nigeria. Of course, they won't win. You know, I don't I don't get this. Before we move on to takeaways of the week, right? I don't get the furore around the Nigerian kit. I think it's ugly. It's uh, an acid late 1980s, early 1990s English uh, first division football top. It cut, it's like it's the green and white version of the Arsenal away kit when they won the championship under George Graham. It's horrendous. I don't like it. But anyway, on that note, <laughs> let's move on to our takeaways of the, of the last seven days. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Roy Phil Brown and with me I have... David Crowther of the History of England. It was the best of time. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. To fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. To fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. It gives wind in Churchill sails to say we can continue to fight on. Well, there cannot be many more famous events in English history than 1066. It hurts, (laughs) even now. Because 1066 is important. Yeah. But there's aspects of modern British culture which I think get overlooked. So I'm proposing that this week we do SCAR. For me, the English flag has in the past certainly become associated with factionalism, and, well, hideous racist and far-right views, and it's turned into a thing of disunity and almost xenophobia. The idea of this show is to decide on what things that make England... As she is, the country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Every week, one of us, that is David and I, will pitch an idea to the other to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. Go and join our shiny new Facebook site where once a month we will post a poll where, should you so desire, you can make your own very suggestions for applications to the I Made England Award. So, without more ado, let's do it. It's that time where we chill and relax with friends and we just talk about anything which isn't to do with politics. Though, the World Cup kind of comes with that category too. But anyway, uh, Mick, as always, you've called me rude uh, you've uh, been uh, somewhat confrontational in this podcast, though. But to be fair to you, right, you dialed it down a notch or two, right? So we're going to start with you. What's been your takeaway the last seven days? Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Can we address that first? You bollock. <laughs> right. Now, look, people, listeners need to realise that you and I are very good friends <laughs> because people don't realise this. So I just want to put that out there. Um, 
but moving on from that, it always hurts my feelings. Um, well, no, so here's the thing, right? What interests me is, Royford, have you heard of Logan Paul? Of course, yeah. Yeah. Have you heard of KSI? No. Now, well, there you go. So, KSI is a British YouTuber who has 18 million subscribers. And he wow. previously had a uh, white-collar boxing match against another British YouTuber. And at the end of that fight, he challenged the Paul brothers to a boxing match. So, that's happening on August the 25th. And I think it's really interesting because there's this whole world of YouTube stuff, right? And sometimes, like a like a, an iceberg, the tip of it breaches through into popular culture, like the rest of culture, right? And everyone hears about it. So most people heard about Logan Paul and Suicide Forest and, you know, questions of like, was that appropriate? Because it was sort of a moral question. Is he an idiot? Yes, he is. But this is amazing, right? They are at Manchester Arena having a boxing match, a, a, a transatlantic contest between these two guys who between them have got something like 100 million fans. That's insane. That is insane. Also, uh, when we're talking about national pride, I'm hoping that KSI knocks Logan Paul out, but that's by the by. <laughs> but anyway, it's interesting. This is a huge thing, and it, you know, it's 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 selling out a big stadium, and yet you know, it's it's what like it doesn't make it. You know, it would make it's not like uh, it, 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 remember when Oasis and Blurb trying to get a number one record at the top of things. It's mm-hmm. the equivalent of that, and most people don't know it's happening. Well, old people don't know it's happening. Me being one of them, my 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 um apprentice. Well, you do know happening. Oh wow! Okay, all right. Well, now you, there is this phenomenon of well, it's just it's a symptom, isn't it, of the fragmentation of media? And, and you're you're completely right to use that blur and oasis analogy. So, for our American uh, listeners, uh, in the mid '90s, Blur and Oasis were the two biggest bands in the UK, and there was a massive rivalry. There were the indie kind of Britpop bands, and there was a massive rivalry, and they would deliberately put out records to see which one could get to number one. But it was a media moment, and media moments. Um, are becoming less and less. It's not that there aren't any. So when Beyonce decides to do uh, an album with, with her hubby, uh, we, we read about it and stuff. But you're, you're completely uh, right to point this up as something which is uh, peculiar, that you can have people who are have such renown in one specific field, YouTube, but it's not in the popular consciousness, i.e. the mainstream media, and I don't sound like a Fox News uh, kind of host, but the mainstream media... Um, it matters not a jot to, and they're not talking about it. Because so I've never heard of KSI, and I've only heard of Logan Paul because of the controversy that he's involved in uh, before. I didn't know of his work beforehand. But hmm. yeah, work is work is uh, overselling <laughs> it, really. But yeah, his output, then, sir, his output. Um, Amanda Marcotte in hips in Brooklyn. Uh, over to you, Amanda. So um, yeah. This week, um, I finally caught up on, and there's still some more episodes to be released on Hulu, The Handmaid's Tale. And I have to say, it's been absolutely a fascinating show. Um, I'm a big fan of the original novel by Margaret Atwood. I actually wrote uh, my senior thesis about it. (laughs) Um, And... Uh, the first season of the show, while it added a lot of stuff, basically followed the bare bones of the the plot of the original novel. So it's been interesting watching 
a second season of the show where they they really kind of move on past the, the original novel. And I think that obviously there are other shows that have done this, like Game of Thrones and whatnot. But this is the first time I've ever seen a TV show that takes what I would consider like a literary novel, like a classic literary novel, and and does that with it. It sort of expands on it as a TV show instead of just faithfully adapting it. Um, it's it's a hell of a beyond. Yeah, it's job. been a hell of an experiment, and I, I've been surprised and pleasantly so at how good they've done. And um, how far into the second season are we at the moment? Or are you at the moment? I've finished uh, what's aired. I watched. Um, I, I don't want to spoil anybody, but it there's a few more episodes that are coming this season, um, and it, it's been very interesting because they filmed a lot of this stuff before. Uh, the po- the current political moment, but the season has been almost uncomfortably close to a lot of things that are happening in the real world, uh, particularly in focusing heavily on the damage that happens when parents are forcibly separated from children. Mm. Uh, that's so interesting, isn't it? Given that 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 would like set herself that rule that in the original book everything had to have happened somewhere in the world. Yeah. And I suppose like that actually sort of made whatever um, decisions they make in the show likelier to sort of dovetail with what's happening in the real world. Because I will say, Atwood's point in doing that was to make the point that tyranny always sort of follows the same forms no matter what time or you know, historical period you're in. Good call, good call. I must admit, I absolutely enjoyed season one and haven't got around to watching season two so you've reminded me that that's another bit of quality tv that i need to uh, jump into and and my i must admit i came into this um takeaways of the week absolutely not having one and my takeaway i suppose is this and i've had to scramble for one uh, whilst uh, you and nick were, were speaking amanda is that coming back home to to birmingham the Midlands, you realise the kind of the subtle, the subtle differences in, in kind of culture, and just in one of them, uh, and whether that is me spending the last twenty odd years of my life in in London, and then on and off for the last four years in in Bay Area in San Francisco, is that people here watch TV, and in in a in a passive way, which I haven't seen uh, for years i.e. people here still switch on the TV and things just happen in front of them. I've watched so many episodes of Catchphrase going around to friends, which I wouldn't watch in a million years. And that, and Catchphrase is this somewhat down at heel game show uh, where you have to guess the catchphrase by some cartoon characters which are on the screen. And then the news just comes on and then EastEnders comes on and then some, another show comes on. And I haven't watched TV like that in at least 10 years. That uh, if you talk about uh, The Handmaid's Tale, uh, that's a HBO show, isn't it? It's Hulu. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. But streaming. Actually, even, even that, the fact that I didn't know the channel is kind of almost making my point. That what I was going on to say is that I 
and many people like me, and I'm guessing that you two are similar, we watch shows and we have little and no allegiance to the channel that originated it. So if anything, you go, I'm watching something on Netflix, but I'm not watching an ABC, a CBS, a BBC necessarily, or an ITV show. I'm watching this program, which I've been told um, is of sufficient quality. I don't watch the output of a station. And it's just, you know, I come around to my mum and dad's. I kind of expect them to switch on the TV and there to be, oh, you know, some kind of game show on that, that, that late, late on in the, in the afternoon. But I put that down to them being seniors now. And, and that is just the way that they consume their media. But actually, people my age and younger um, here still watch uh, and consume TV in that traditional way. And you look at all the stats from the BBC and they, and, and they just say that I play with the, when England played, um, I th- I, I, yes, I think it was Panama, but it was the most amount of streams I've ever had from BBC iPlayer. Um, and it was what, 85% of the TV watching public was watching that game. That's a, that's event TV. There's a quintessential uh, notion of event TV. I watch that on TV. I wouldn't watch Catchphrase or some game show or Jeremy Kyle or anything else. But what I would do is choose, um, in effect, some kind of box set which delivered through something which kind of looks like a TV. So that's just it. I, I hadn't really thought of one. But it's. Uh, I'll, tell, I'll tell you something though. Never, no. never watch the football on streaming because my neighbours were like, we don't have a TV aerial, <laughs> right? Exactly so we were watching on streaming, and our mm. neighbours were ahead of us. So I knew whenever England scored a goal because I heard them scream, oh. and then I saw the goal, which was, which is a weird uh, and not optimum experience for football watching. <laughs> I watched Golden State Warriors, I believe, in uh, Game 7. So, no, not Game 7, Game 4, because we beat the Cavaliers for for Zip. And I was streaming it. I had a friend in the US who was watching it on TV. And I kept open FaceTime on my laptop or something on my iPad. And actually, I was 10 seconds ahead of her. And I was streaming it and she was watching TV. So I was going, way and whatever. So yeah, it was that, exactly that uh, experience, but in reverse. But anyway, folks, um, let's move on from uh, talk of streaming TV box sets and um, weird and wonderful YouTube celebrities who um, are going to kick hell out of each other, punch hell out of each other in front of millions of people on that streaming platform. Uh, This has been um, another Mid-Atlantic with our Texan from El Paso, Amanda Marcotte, and Mick Wright, our somewhat Irish person that lives in in Norwich. Um, Amanda, uh, what are you up to at the moment just before you go? Um, I'm still writing for Salon.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Amanda Marcotte. And you, Mr. Wright? Um, I, I, well, I write for um, GQ and the New Statesman when they bother to commission me, which is occasionally. And uh, I run my own company, The Means Agency. So um, on Twitter, I'm at Broken Bottle Boy. And The Means Agency is at uh, Read The Means. Commission us to do cool stuff because I need money. <laughs> <laughs> and I must admit, I've got a nice little commission at the moment. I'm actually doing uh, a set of podcasts for the Commonwealth. 
at the moment. So thank you, Commonwealth, for uh, trusting me with such a, a weighty job. Um, you can find me on the socials where I am at Royfield, and because the work, the name Royfield is made up, I'm just Royfield anywhere. Um, we are at Mid Atlantic Show on the Twitters. Remember, folks, uh, we are the good guys. We are the voice of, uh, I would say, uh, the pleasant, but also sometimes the angry, the bellicose uh, left, also. But fundamentally, we are the good guys. See you all again soon. Bye bye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.